Hey there, welcome to The Deeper Podcast. My name is Reverend Sean, I'm one of your hosts. And if you're new here, Deeper is all about how we can unleash more courage and more love in our lives. And not just in the big ways that seem unmanageable and beyond our capacity, but in the small ways. The micro movements that therapist and speaker Esther Perel talks about that allow us to unlock new ways of being with each other and within our society. And today on the podcast, we're talking about how easy it is to get along with one another. That's right. Uh, I know you feel that way, that other humans are pretty easy to get along with, and that most of the time, if not all of the time, it's pretty breezy going. You look at the news, you look at society, it's not like there's escalating tensions in Europe or blockades of major roads and capital cities in Canada or, you know, any sort of conflict in our own households. It's, it's pretty, being human's a pretty easy gig, all things considered. Yeah, right. That's uh, not the case. So yes, today we're talking about conflict and conflict in relationships. And my hope is that because conflict is normal, I mean, it, we, we can't escape a life without conflict. Nothing meaningful has ever changed without it. What we can do is figure out how we can make conflict more generative and less destructive. And so today on the podcast, we're going to hear an amazing interview with one of our members, Jennifer Dunkel, who's a couples therapist, on how she works with couples to help transform conflict within relationships. And although she's talking about couples, let me just tell you, it definitely applies to all sorts of close relationships. But before we get to that interview with Jennifer, I just want to say that loving well when it's hard is not easy. Biologically, conflict ignites our nervous system, making it difficult to think, let alone act in a way that is in alignment of our values. I, I, I think most of us, when we look back at some of the worst fights we've ever been in, could say, yeah, that isn't what my deepest values would have guided me to do. And I'm sure you've been in a situation where before you is a person that you, you know, profess to love deeply. But in that moment of conflict, you're not even sure if you like them very much. And even though it's a person that you've made some sort of enduring commitment to, that could be through marriage, parenthood, common work, or a long-term friendship, and you see that the, the person is clearly hurting or struggling, just as you are probably hurting or struggling, that despite all of that love and that history and that commitment, you still find yourself at an impasse. I'm sure you've been there. That impasse where tempers start to simmer, and it's like you're negotiating through an obstacle course, or even the slightest shift in tone and I'm serious, like you could say the same word just with a different inflection. And that can turn the phrase from simply an explanation that might cool things down into some sort of heat-seeking missile for the other person's weak spots, for the other person's wounds. In those moments, our histories, both ancient and recent, are hidden landmines that go off at the slightest provocation if we trod too close to them, releasing emotions that sometimes flare red hot or sometimes icy cold. 
Well, the irony is on the other side of the room is a person just like you, right? They're facing a person that they profess to love, even if they don't like you very much in that moment. They've made that same sort of commitment. And yet here you both are with enough love and commitment and history between you that in some ways you think, oh, this should be enough that we should be able to avert the crisis that's brewing, especially when the crisis seems to be over something, I mean, like seemingly trivial, right? Like how many fights have we gotten into with people we love over what seems to be the silliest things of hanging up towels or how to close cabinets? And yet it's not. That, that history, that love, that commitment doesn't seem to be enough. I, I often come back to the words of contemplative John O'Donohue. When gentleness between you hardens and you fall out of your belonging with each other, may the depths you have reached hold you still. When the gentleness hardens between one that we love and we fall out of our belonging, we are still held by the depths of our connection by the depths of our history, by the depths of our commitment, if only, if only we can recognize that the conflict that is brewing is an opportunity. And that's the key. And it can't always be done in the moment because our biological selves treat conflict often like threat. And when we're under threat, we can't be curious, right? You can't be curious if you think you're being attacked. You can't be um, vulnerable if you think it's going to be used against you. And yet, that sort of curiosity and vulnerability is exactly what's needed when conflict starts to take root. Because to transform conflict, we have to figure out how difference doesn't necessitate division where hurt can be repaired, where forgiveness can be given, and a path forward can be forged together. That's the key, together. But we can only do that if somehow we see the moment of conflict where you're looking into the eyes of your beloved with more malice than love. We can only do that if we see that moment as an opportunity to traverse the white waters of conflict well. Because as I said at the beginning, conflict is natural. Conflict is normal. It's the remarkably logical outcome of two timeless truths of our human existence, which is that one, that we need each other, and two, that relationships are hard work. Conflict at its heart is our inability to manage those two truths. It's an inability to manage the differences that arise in both our needing one another and our capacity to be with one another. Differences that come in all shapes and sizes, differences in perspective on how to raise a child, differences in experience as to race and class, differences in understandings about how power and wealth should be distributed, differences in values on and how we go about meeting our needs or living into those values. And, you know, conflict gets a bad rap, especially, you know, when you come from a background like me, which is white and middle class, because, well, being white and middle class 
We don't like to be uncomfortable, and conflict is inherently uncomfortable. And we don't have a lot of practice being uncomfortable. And yet it's in that discomfort where the generativity lies, where we can name and discuss our differences. And that the anxiety that we have, which is normal, doesn't actually railroad the opportunity. Because without conflict, nothing would ever change. Conflict is simply a vehicle. And the question for us is always, where is our destination going to be? Are we headed to Understanding Town in Growth County, or are we going to Gridlock City? And for most of us, conflict, we assume, is going to bring us to Gridlock City. And yet how we move through the conflict is what determines the destination, not the content of the conflict. How we move through the conflict is what determines our destination, not the content of the conflict. What makes it even harder is that the presenting issues in the conflict, the content of the conflict is hardly ever the real difference that is at play. We may think it is about what we're fighting about, but most of the time it's not. Couples therapist and researcher Howard Markman says that all conflicts revolve around three hidden dimensions, power and control, or agency, care and closeness, or connectedness, respect and recognition, or appreciation, control, closeness, respect three hidden dimensions that every fight is actually about. And of course, those aren't easy dimensions to solve for. And often, as we're going to get to in the conversation with Jennifer, they are not actually solvable. Our conflicts are not solvable, but perpetual. And so these hidden dimensions, what they do is give us a map of the subterranean aspects of conflict, of what's truly going on when we're in conflict so that we can understand that the fight about the toothbrush is actually about respect. Or deciding where to eat or what movie to watch on Netflix is actually a test of care and closeness. It reorients us in those moments back to curiosity, back to opportunity. Because if what we think we're fighting about is not what we're fighting about, what we can choose to fight about is the health of our relationship. Which doesn't mean, of course not speaking the truth. But what it does mean is doing it in a way that unlocks something new. And this is exactly what I had the pleasure of talking to Jennifer Dunkel about in her role as a couples counselor about how we can move towards more generative, more productive conflict in our relationships. So I'm going to invite Jennifer into this conversation. I'm here with Jennifer Dungle, who's a member of the congregation and is also a therapist who's worked with, I don't know if you keep track of how many couples you've worked with over your career, but it's probably uh, a lot. Yeah, hundreds probably. Hundreds, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could introduce yourself and a little bit about kind of your, your practice and how you come at this work of repairing relationships. Okay. It started because I have an interest in financial therapy. Financial therapy is about kind of the emotional reasons that we spend and save money the way we do and how we can do that more effectively. And so I quickly realized that a lot of couples have issues. with. So I thought I've always liked John Gottman and his work 
doing research with couples. Uh, to date, over 7,000 couples have been studied by the Gottman Institute. And so I thought, okay, I'll do training on Gottman couples therapy. So that's really what started me on the journey to working with couples about money issues, but also many other types of issues. In your experience working with, with couples, and you know, we're, we're probably going to be talking a lot about couples, but I think a lot of this applies to any like close relationships we have. Mm -hmm. What are the kind of common conflicts that arise that you see kind of the trends and what people fight about? Well, boy, the, there's a variety of issues, but money is often cited as one of the top things that couples fight about, but also, you know, parenting and trying to solve the dilemma of time together versus time apart. John Gottman was asked about that. And he said, they a lot of times fights are about almost nothing, you know, mm -hmm. to the observer, it seems like. Why are they fighting about that? But really it's because of the meaning that is involved, like what it means to each partner. Say more about that. There's often layers to what people are fighting about. It, it, on the surface, it might be, you know, you're driving me crazy because, you know, you're forgetting to hang up the towel, right? But I'm very guilty of that. that what does that mean? It might mean, are you respecting me and my values? What do you think is important? What do I think is important? So oftentimes you want to unpack what the meaning is behind car. Okay. I'm curious about that. Let's say someone that you're close with, you're, you're, you find yourself in conflict more often than you'd like. There's, you know, obviously it's not about the surface things, even though the surface things are clues, what's something people that could do together to help get at those deeper layers of what's actually going on? Because I will say sometimes when I'm in conflict, I don't actually know what's going on for me. Mm -hmm. Like I, I can be pretty um, set in thinking it's about one thing. And then with time and reflection, I realize it's something deeper. So what, what are some of the ways that we can get at some of that deeper, deeper stuff? A lot of times it relates to our childhood history and it, it comes actually from, you know, our, our childhood or adolescence or experiences we might've had as a young adult. And so sometimes if you would start to unpack, like, where did that come from? What does it mean to you that for example, wanting one person wanting to save money and the other person wanting to spend money. Well, the saver, it, money might mean safety and security, feeling comfortable, easing anxiety. And then to the, the one who wants to spend more, it might be, hey, you never know what's going to happen in the future. We can never count on a, a future necessarily. I really want to enjoy my life today. So if you start to understand some of those conflicting uh, values and goals, that that's a step forward to understand where it's coming. Yeah, I remember with one of my roommates in college, 
he always got upset with me that I didn't lock the door when I like <laughs> came in and we were talking about it and we realized that for me, like locking the door was a sign that there was something like dangerous outside. And so it actually signaled a sense of danger that I was in a dangerous place and that people might come in here. So that was like a signal for me. But for him, locking the door was what created safety, right? It was a symbol for safety. And so we had very different underlying um, understandings of what was going on. Mm -hmm. It was just like, I was sort of forgetting to lock the door, but it also was this deeper sense of if I lock it, that means I'm kind of scared and I don't want to be scared. So let's say you've you've been able to get at some of that deeper stuff and you realize there is kind of that that difference in perspective, those different values, like the, the person who's saving for the future so they can be kind of secure versus the person who's wanting to live now because they're not sure if there's that future. Mm-hmm. I mean, those seem pretty opposite perspectives. What happens next? Gottman's research found that only about 31% of the time is conflict actually solvable per se. Like, hey, what was the percentage? 31. 31. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to take that to the bank. <laughs> you know, in, in a solvable conflict is something like, hey, we're going to paint our living room. Well, you have to come up with a color, right? That's a solvable problem in most cases. So 69% of the time, conflict was found to be perpetual, and it comes from differences in your values and in your personality, you know, just differences in your, in your traits. What you're trying to help people move from is feeling really gridlocked and stuck on those perpetual issues. And in moving toward having a dialogue about it, like, let's talk about it. Let's see what kind of give and take we can have, what kind of compromises we can. The simple example that I use is if one person's a night owl and the other one's an early bird, right? Those are innate biological tendencies. You're not going to convince a night owl to go to bed at 8 p.m. and you're not going to convince them early birds sleep in until 9 a.m. But if you can talk about it and move toward compromise, that is is really key. I, I, okay, I'm still kind of shook by that 69% of conflicts aren't solvable because it, it makes me feel that like the operating perspective about conflict in relationships is is maybe wrong. What I'm hearing you say is that the majority of the time, the conflict is not something to be solved. You're not going to find a way in which there's kind of the, the natural win-win in which everyone's kind of happy. And so the conflict is an opportunity for, for dialogue and kind of mutual care almost. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of what you're getting at? It's interesting how this was discovered. So the Gottman Institute has done many, many longitudinal studies. And so they might see couples in year one when they were newlyweds and then three years later and five years after that. And they realized and they videotaped couples having conflict discussions um, and they realized you know, in year five, they're still talking about what they talked about in year one. So what you want to do is have conflict that most of the time 
is is uh, constructive and productive, and less of the time is really destructive. Which brings me to the topic of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Naturally. <laughs> kind of has a little religious flavor. I mean, a literal religious flavor of the <laughs> end of times as predicted in the book of Revelation. But continue. I'm curious. Okay. okay. So these four patterns were discovered to be particularly destructive in relationships. So they are criticism defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. Now, before you panic, we all do these things, right? So there aren't perfect people that cannot do these things. I don't think so. Okay, good. None of us are perfect at this. We all fall into particularly uh, criticism and defensiveness. Could you give kind of just a, a little quick definition of each of them and maybe an example? Okay. So criticism is when you're attacking someone's character. Like you're saying, hey, there's something the matter with you and I'm going to tell you all about it. So a lot of times when we say, you always, you never, that's likely to be criticism. And then defensiveness is what we all tend to do when we feel attacked, right? Oftentimes we'll go on the counterattack. Contempt is really criticism magnified, where you're looking down your nose at the other person from a position of superiority. And then stonewalling is when you heard a complaint, but you're not willing to engage with it. You know, you just kind of get very quiet and you don't make eye contact and you might cross your arms. So those are the four horsemen. Now you'll be happy to hear there are antidotes. I am happy to hear that. <laughs> uh, and, and I just want to say that like you want to have most of the time conflict go productively, but none of us are perfect. So there's always going to be times when we fall short. The antidotes are to criticism, it's to use a gentle startup. I'll come back to that one because it's really important. Defensiveness, the antidote to that is to accept responsibility for at least a small part of the problem because that helps the other person feel heard. And then contempt is really to be able to talk about your own needs in a productive way and build a culture of appreciation where you're on the lookout for things to appreciate rather than things that are negatives. And then stonewalling is to be able to soothe yourself and stay connected in the interaction. So the, I'll tell you about gentle startups. A lot of us have heard of like using I statements, but it really does make a difference. So if you can say, I feel, and then put your feeling words in there, like I feel upset, I feel sad, I feel angry, you know, whatever your feeling words are. Now, a lot of times 
we will cheat and we'll think we're doing an I statement and it's really a you statement. Like I think you're being a butt. Yep. There you go. Right. The um, second part is to try to describe the situation briefly and neutrally without doing it in an attacking or blaming way. You're trying to be in the neutral zone. And then the, probably the most important part is to say what you want to. I would really like it if, you know, so instead of focusing on the negative and what you haven't been getting, you instead focus on the positive and what you would see more of. And then be polite, be polite. We all know how to do gentle startup. Right. It's how we would treat guests in our home. So it's not actually rocket science, but when it comes to significant relationships, we often forget those skills. So try to be polite and treat the other person as though they're a guest that, you know, a welcome guest instead of the worst person on the planet. Give appreciation, noticing what people are doing right rather than what they're doing wrong, what you want to see more of. And also it's recommended to try to let things out when they're relatively small complaints rather than letting the build up, build up, build up, up, and then they just come out in a torrent. So tiny kind of pressure releases rather than explosions. Yep. (laughs) I was reading Dan Siegel, who's a, he does a lot of work in kind of trauma and, and parenting. And he, he was saying that we see a lot of our kind of deepest stuff come up in our intimate relationships for a few reasons. The first is that usually they're, they're people that we are most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And so we're most, are, we feel safe to kind of reveal the inner chaos that might be in or the un the unresolved and unhealed parts of our ourselves Mm -hmm. Um, and with our our closest people usually we have a very long tenure of the relationship so those tiny moments of frustration can build up in a way that they don't if you only see someone like once a year or you know you just you have fun times with your friends but it's not like in the the muck of daily life all the time in yeah. which there's a plenty of opportunities to to rub up against each other yeah. that are challenging. And and that's normal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other part of this is like is to name that conflict is normal. Yeah. I, I think we we don't talk about conflict that we have in our relationships very often or openly. It's kind of a sign that things aren't going well. But mm-hmm. conflict is normal. It happens to everyone. And it's not, it's mere existence that's the problem. It's how we engage it. Yes, very, very true. Gottman's research showed that conflict is necessary and productive in relationships. So how could, yeah, let's say more about that. Like how can, how does conflict actually is productive for our relationships? Well, it's like you're, it's a constant negotiation. You're constantly kind of working things out. And, and the op, if you're avoiding conflict, that means there's a lot that's not being 
right? And that's tends, I mean, there's some couples who are both pretty conflict avoidant and it works for them, but you know, for the rest of us, um, there, if we don't work out conflict, there's a lot that's actually, you know, being left unsaid that, you know, can over time really erode the foundation of a, of a relationship. Yeah. And I think conflict, it's scary, right? Sometimes we really hurt people or we feel really hurt by others. So it's a scary thing to experience. And yet, like you said, it is normal. Um, it is actually productive. You can think of it that way. So it's not like the end of the world when conflict happens, but it's like, okay, this is an opportunity for us to work things out and get to know each other a little better and understand each other. So it doesn't have to be viewed as a super scary. So thinking about those couples and in, in that longitudinal study, what set up the couples that felt like the most, um, that used content, a conflict productively that felt most satisfied in their relationships? Like what was the difference between those couples and the couples that the conflict really uh, eroded the foundation of their relationship. Yes, very interesting topic. So because they did a lot of longitudinal research, you know, at the end of this study, like year eight, for example, they might say, okay, who's together and happy? Who's together and unhappy? And who has split up? And they always had lots and lots of graduate students, right? who could watch the hours of videotapes. And so that's when the four horsemen were discovered because they realized that among newlyweds, even as newlyweds, when you would think couples would be the happiest, right? The four horsemen were happening much more often than they were in uh, couples who were going to end up in the happy group. This inspired John and Julie Gottman to um, create the Gottman Institute in order to train couples on how to do more of what the happy couples are doing and less of what the unhappy couples are doing. And, and that's when the four horsemen were um, discovered. And so John Gottman, he can actually look at videotapes of newlyweds, you know, for like 15 minutes. And he can predict with over 90% accuracy who is going to be in the happy group at the end of the study for the unhappy group. So he, he jokes. Not inviting him to the wedding. Right. He, he, he jokes that he doesn't necessarily get asked to dinner parties because, because of that. But. And it's all based on how much the four horsemen are present. And so I'm guessing it's not the case that how our relationships begin is how our relationships are going to end. Like that there's no possibility for change in our behaviors. I'm, I'm going to hold out hope that that is the case. Like 
is it possible to shift these behaviors in a way that uh, creates different outcomes in our relationships? For sure. Yeah. And that's the mission of the Gottman Institute. Like, let's, let's train more couples on how, on the antidotes to the four horsemen so that they end up doing less of them and are more likely to end in a happier group versus the unhappy group. So yes, it's all about, you know, helping people shift those destructive patterns. Esther Perel talks about rebuilding relationships in micro movements that, you know, we can begin with very subtle and small movements and that that is enough to start shifting the balance of our relationships. Mm -hmm. What are, what would you say is like one or two, like really small micro things that people could try out in their relationships to help? Well, I think um, being aware of those destructive patterns, like criticism of, of someone. But, but people are wrong, Jennifer. People are wrong. So what do I do when people are wrong? And I want to tell them that. Well, what you want to do is complain about behavior instead of attacking someone's character. So, you know, gentle startup is not about not having conflict or because conflict exists. It's just trying to channel it into more productive ways. So we can complain about someone's behavior using those I statements, right? And so this is not about not complaining. It's about complaining versus criticizing. And then the other thing is to watch out for defensiveness, you know, because I think criticism gets a bad rap because it's pretty obvious, right? But defensiveness is equally one of the four horsemen. And so the antidote to that is to see if there's any part of what the other person is saying that you can accept some responsibility for and then acknowledge that. You might think, hey, they're 95% wrong, I'm 5% wrong. But if you can acknowledge your 5% and maybe not say that you're only acknowledging 5%. So you shouldn't have a conflict about the percentages of responsibility is what it right. Okay. Right. But if you can, if you can accept some responsibility that helps the other person feel heard instead of ignored, and then that will um, help the conflict stay more productive. So don't be like Teflon and deflect everything back onto the other person. So I know that in some of my relationships, the, the conflicts that we tend to have they they have very familiar kind of tropes that you fall into mm-hmm. and you kind of notice you're falling into it you're the same things are being said the same words you know the same criticism so if someone is starting to feel that they're falling into that like in the moment like you know our higher reflective brains are not online here no what sh- what should we like what could we do in that moment in which we're noticing, hey, we're saying the things we usually say before, you know, conflict deteriorates. What, what could I do to prevent? 
I'm glad you, you brought that up because th that brings us to the topic of being flooded. When they would do research, they would measure heart rates, they measured oxygen levels, they took urine samples, they took blood samples, and they found out that in conflict, we, we, we will get physiologically flooded. And you were so right. Our adult thinking brains are literally offline. We're operating out of fight, flight, or freeze mode with our primitive brains. And we really need a break. We need to have a system for taking a break. Either person can call for a timeout. If you feel as though you're getting flooded, you want to say, hey, I need a break. Or we need a break. You don't want to say you need a break. <laughs> That doesn't go over well. You're seeming really defensive right now with a lot of <laughs> contempt coming towards me. So you need a break. Right, right. No, it's we need a break. And, and the break needs to be about 20 to 30 minutes before we get back to our physiological baseline and have access to our thinking brains. Can I just jump in there and say one quick thing? I also notice that myself and my partner are more likely to have unproductive conflict at the end of the day mm -hmm. when we're tired. Mm -hmm. And so that's again, like not having complete access to our brains, checking if we've eaten, if we're tired, like dealing with those kind of bodily needs and then coming back to the conversation. Usually it's like, why were we having this fight? Like the intensity is not there because there was something kind of physiologically that was not being tended to or stressed. And so I feel like there's also ways of, okay, taking the break, but also, and taking care of like, what's maybe making the conflict worse. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Cause our resilience is down if we're hungry, if we're tired. And the, you know, sometimes people need longer than 20 to 30 minutes. So Gottman's guideline is, well, no more than 24 hours before you revisit that topic. Doesn't mean you don't talk about anything, but you might need more time before you revisit that topic. However, if you're asking for a timeout, be sure to say when you'll be willing to talk about it further. That seems so small, but yet, as you said it, I was like, wow, if someone did that to me, I would feel so much different about taking a break. Yeah. Yeah, because you, you don't get to just slam the door and stomp off, right? You, you want to say, hey, I need a break. I'm going to go for a walk around the block. And then let's try again. Right? That, that really helps the other person not feel abandoned. Right? Ideally, I mean, it's hard to do, but ideally you can take a break sooner in the process before things really go off the rail. Maybe that's one of the skills that we can develop is like mm -hmm. noticing that we need to break earlier in the process rather mm -hmm. than when, you know, those like runaway lanes, like when in the mountains, when you're driving, yeah. it's like before you need the runaway lane, yeah. Yeah. let's check our brakes before we're barreling down the hill. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. So my last question is a little bit different, which is how is 
tending to our relationships, especially through conflict, kind of spiritual work? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting one. I think the main purpose is to keep relationships safe and healthy and in and a place where each person feels like they can be themselves, be authentic, be seen for who they really are and not, um, you know, treated badly. You know, so it, it, it becomes more a relationship where both people can thrive more of the, and, you know, it has effects on our physical health, you know, so we can, if, if we feel safe in relationships of all types, then that is helping us be able to thrive as people. I think of spirituality as as the process or the practices that help us feel fully alive. And that's fully connected within, fully connected to others, and then fully connected to something larger than ourselves. And just underlying what you said there, that to feel safe in this world, that feeling of safety comes from relationship. Mm -hmm. we're, we're born through relationship. We enter relationships because we need them not just because they're like practically need them, we need them for our very being. And so tending to the, that fabric that allows us to feel safe and to allow us to kind of present ourselves is that unfolding of our aliveness. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Well, well, Thank you so much, uh, Jennifer, for sharing your, your experience and, and the work of Gottman with us. Mm -hmm. I know probably all of us maybe like left the conversation at one point mentally because we were thinking about something that we could do and shift in our relationships. So I appreciate you, you giving us that food for thought and hopefully some, some opportunities for those micro movements. Well, my pleasure. Thanks so much. I want to thank Jennifer for sitting down with me and sharing her experience. I think there's so much wisdom in what she shared that makes me think about my experience that I had in college because I actually used to go into public schools and teach teens and kids about conflict resolution. It was a great gig. And one of the games that we used to play involved pairing students up and we'd place a long line of tape across the center of the room and we'd stand each student facing their partner across the line with one person on each side of the line. We told them, the goal of this game is to get your partner to come to your side of the line without touching. That was always really important to say, without touching. And as soon as we'd say go, the classroom would be filled with voices. My favorites were the people offering bribes, like, hey, I'll give you my Oreos if you come to my side of the classroom. Others would try to convince their partners of the merits of one side versus the other, like, oh, if you come to my side, you can look out the windows, and the windows are really pretty. And then, of course, some people would just devolve into threats, like, if you don't come to my side, I'm going to, I don't know, do something to you. Which I thought was important, because that's actually how many of us deal with conflict, is through threats. We'd let the exercise go for a few minutes before calling it quits. 
Do you know how many people succeeded in moving their partner to their side of the line? Hardly a soul. Hardly a person. Usually the only person to cross the line was a person who couldn't care less about the exercise and would kind of walk over to their partner without even a word because they didn't really care about what was going on and they would be sticking it to me. It's such a silly exercise. And yet it shows us how imbued an understanding of winner-take-all is. After the exercise was done and the students were sitting back down, my co-facilitator and I would assume the positions, one of us on either side of the line. And, and one of us would say to the other, hey, would you come to my side of the line? And the other would respond, hmm, only if we both switch sides. And then we would sort of like do -si do our way across the line, both of us switching sides. And of course, the students would be in uproar. You can't do that. You both lost. You have to stay on your side of the line. There's something about our brains, be it biological or taught, that sort of fast thinking that says, for me to win, you have to lose. And even when that's not the case in this situation, we can be so determined not to lose, so determined to win that we sort of mistake the other person as our true opponent. Because if you think about the instructions we gave them, the instructions were not, you must remain on your side and convince the other person to come to yours. It was simply convince the other person to come to your side. The real opponent in the game was not the other person, but the problem that was presenting itself before you both. When researchers look at conflicts between couples, conflicts in workplaces, they found one important characteristic, one differentiator between those who use conflict as a place for growth versus when conflict was consistently a destructive force. And that one characteristic for people who used conflict as a source for growth was people who perceived conflict as a challenge that could be tackled together instead of a conflict that was located in the other person. The conflict was a challenge to be worked out together, not a moment to fix or change the other person. Now, of course, the challenge may well involve the other person. It may require acts of repair and reparation and apology and commitments to future change. In our most close and intimate relationships, you know, we make a promise to go somewhere unknown together. Not knowing the cost that intimacy will extract from us, and yet we're somehow compelled to go on to that journey. A journey that is filled with conflict naturally. So the question we can ask ourselves when we're in conflict with someone we love, when we made that commitment, did we select our opponent or did we select our teammate? For whatever life throws at you, did you select your opponent or your teammate? Because if you see the person as your teammate, the possibility for taking the perpetual conflict, that 69% of conflict, and using it as a place for growth rather than gridlock, is so much higher. Now is the time for one of you to be gracious, John O'Donohue wrote. I want to close out by reading the full blessing from John O'Donohue. From his book, To Bless the Space Between Us, it is entitled, For Love in a Time of Conflict. When the gentleness between you hardens and you fall out of your belonging with each other, may the depths you have reached hold you still. When no true word can be said, 
or heard, and you mirror each other in the script of hurt. When even the silence has become raw and torn, may you hear again an echo of your first music. When the weave of affection starts to unravel and anger begins to sear the ground between you, before this weather of grief invites the black seed of bitterness to find root, may your souls come to kiss. Now is the time for one of you to be gracious, to allow a kindness beyond thought and hurt. Reach out with sure hands to take the chalice of your love and carry it through the echoless waste until this winter pilgrimage leads you towards the gateway of spring. Conflict isn't easy. And yet it's the only thing that will grow us most deeply. May we offer ourselves and each other grace as we move through, remembering that we can be teammates to one another. Amen. And blessed be. I want to thank again, Jennifer, for jumping on Zoom and talking with me. For John O'Donohue and his beautiful work, if you're not aware of his book of blessings, To Bless the Space Between Us, it is one of my go-to books to find words that speak to the inner realities of life. I want to thank all of you for listening. Each week we produce one of these and send it into the ether, not knowing exactly who's going to tune in, and yet hundreds of you do. just want to say thank you. I'm sure this episode is going to speak to many of us, and if there's someone in your life that you think would benefit from its message, please just send it along. we got a couple of weeks left in our Assembly of Required series, all about these relationships that make up this life. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. We're going to leave today with a beautiful rendition of Though I May Speak with Bravest Fire done by Foothills Music Coordinator Jennifer Jolly. really think it's another prayer for us as we engage in conflict. So once again, thanks for listening. Spirits long to be